Previously on this podcast, we discussed a backlash against big tech that is increasingly bipartisan and is also growing. Nothing since we launched that podcast has diminished its import. So what can and should and is being done about big tech? What are the specific problems? And from a free market perspective, how do we square very real concerns people have about big tech with the need to generally preserve free market principles. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another intellectually engaging episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Please remember that all views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. You can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and whatever other platform you may use. Our main feed is at anchor.fm. And you can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte, as well as on the Instagram and Facebook pages of Regent University's Robertson School. So, today I want to talk about big tech. There are, generally speaking, two separate strands of the growing backlash against the big tech, against big tech. One is from the anti-corporate left, and the other is from the cultural right. The anti-corporate left hates big tech because they're corporations. The cultural right hates big tech because big tech has become, in many ways, the enforcement arm of the cultural left. And so I think we need to first examine what the actual problems are, what solutions are being proposed, why I think many of the solutions will not work, and then whether there are solutions that are, in fact, more workable from that sense. Now, there are a couple of things here that we need to keep in mind. One is that some of these problems may, in fact, not be fixable. So if you're on the corporate left and you don't like the growth of corporations, you don't like the growth of corporate power, you're perfectly comfortable with the idea, perhaps, of you know, nationalizing the internet and using some of these big tech companies as public utilities. That's not necessarily something that people on the right, particularly the more free market oriented right, are going to be comfortable with. And it's something that I think about which the cultural right should be wary. But on the other hand, on the free market side, we do have to keep in mind that in some ways, big tech is a unique challenge. It is a different challenge than things that we've seen before. Big tech is not a newspaper. It's not a television station. It's not a radio station. It's much more participatory. It is much more all-inclusive and can be all-inclusive. It has a greater ability to cause filtering than ever before to you know, help essentially literally determine what people see and what they don't see than ever before. And we have allowed big tech companies to gain more control than any other media technology company has had in the past. Okay, you could not have had a situation where cable companies owned the bookstores and they could determine not only what was going to be allowed to be shown on TV, but also what books are going to be sold. 
but Amazon is both a bookstore and a streaming service. Okay. We would not have had a situation in which Ma Bell telephone company was also able to determine what kind of games you could play, what kind of newspapers you could read, what content you, you might see, you know, what radio stations you would listen to all those types of things. But Apple, Google, and, and other companies produce not only phones, but they produce search engines and they, they buy out most of the companies that produce apps. And so they have an immense amount of control over the content that we see. Okay. This is a concentration of power like we have not seen in the past. So the question then becomes, what do we do about it? It's clear that a lot of people are concerned. And it's also clear that there is a monoculture in big tech. Okay, so I want to talk about three separate issues. One is the, the issue of the corporate left. You have an increasing concentration of corporate power. Power is in the hands of, of corporations that are not accountable to anyone. This is seen as dangerous. And the left is going to make an argument that government is more accountable than big tech. Government is more accountable than big tech in the sense that if you don't like what government does, you can throw the bums out and replace them with other bums that you like better. Free market folks have to take into account the fact that that's actually a pretty good argument. I have more input over who my congressman is going to be than who's going to be on the board of Google. Now, we can talk about shareholder activism and, and things like that in some of these other cases, but I would argue that other corporations are not quite as much of a monoculture as big tech is. Big tech is very geographically concentrated. It's extremely ideologically concentrated, and there's a monoculture there that you might not see in Coke that you might not see in other places. So there is a very, very strong cultural bias within the tech sector. They're biased against religion. That's pretty evident. I mean, there's, there's really no, no denying that. Uh, as a general rule, they're about as biased against religion culturally as you would see from elite, elite you know, cultural producers like Hollywood and so on and so forth. They're biased toward social progressivism on just about every front. And they are very America-centric with those biases. What I mean by that is they are perfectly willing to put those biases to the side when they're not talking about the United States. So what you have essentially is, based on the demonstrated pattern of behavior of big tech, a group of people who are insulated, isolated, blinkered, and view their narrow slice of America as the real world and everything else as not the real world, okay? They simply don't care that the Chinese government, about anything really that the Chinese government does. They care much more about somebody saying that you have to provide Religious Freedom Restoration Act protections in LGBT laws in Indiana than they do about China essentially censuring all depictions of anybody who is LGBT and preventing that from, from being put front and center in any way, shape, or form because homosexuality is very strictly regulated, if not outright forbidden in communist China. And they just don't care because they only care about what's happening in America. They're a very narrow, isolated group of people who are much more America-centric than they pretend to be with, you know, they talk about being cosmopolitan, but they're not. If they were, they would actually care about what is happening in the rest of the world and use their power accordingly, but they don't. And they use a kind of cultural relativism, well, we can't say anything about any other culture, to essentially only care about what they care about and only care about what they want to care about. And so you have a narrow, arrogant, and, and that's the other thing, you know, just being very blunt about it. It's a culture that breeds arrogant. 
It's a culture that breeds a kind of intellectual superiority of people who think they're better and smarter than everybody else. Because they are, you know, you, you are concentrating a lot of people who are, in fact, very smart. You don't get into the tech sector and do some of these innovations if you don't have some brain power. The problem is if you get a bunch of smart people together, they will become convinced of their own intelligence. And groups are stupider than individuals. If you were to average the intelligence of those people and take the average intel intellectual IQ score, right? And then you can to compare it to the IQ score as dem demonstrated by the collective decision-making of that group. It's like way lower. Groups make us dumber. Particularly groups of people who all think the same are going to be just stupid. Monocultures are stupid. And so it doesn't matter how smart... If you think you're really smart and you're surrounded by a bunch of really smart people and you all agree on stuff, then you've probably gone into stupid. And this is a, a very serious problem that's happening with big tech because of how geographically, ideologically, and culturally they are concentrated. So you have a very, very narrow monoculture that has extreme power over most aspects of people's lives. Yeah, not surprising that there's going to be a backlash. Now, you can tell from the big tech perspective who they're afraid of and who they're not afraid of. They are concerned about any type of criticism from the corporate left. And so because of that, and because of their own predilections, they have become enforcers of the cultural left, right? If Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and all these folks weren't worried about the left saying, you're not enforcing enough of our orthodoxy on your platforms, Trump wouldn't have been banned from Twitter, okay? How do I know that? Because leaders of the Communist Party in China who are guilty of genocide among the Uyghurs, Ayatollah Khamenei, who is guilty of all kinds of things in Iran, and other bad actors are still allowed to be on Twitter. Why? Because the left in the United States that could potentially regulate big tech within an inch of his life doesn't care about those problems. Okay, Donald Trump is a problem that they care about, so they, they have banned. Let's be very real and transparent about what's happening here. Okay, this is an orchestrated pressure campaign by the left to get corporations to do the enforcement for them. And, and, the, and the big tech corporates are doing this because they're hoping that they get eaten last. Okay, so uh, that they can use this to essentially stave off any kind of attempt to regulate them. The problem they have not realized is that they, they take for granted the fact that the Republican Party is just going to be pro-business. And they're a business, so the Republican, they, so they feel like they don't need to cater to the Republicans. That is no longer the case. Okay, if you are listening to this and you have access to people in that big tech space, they need to be much more concerned about the right at this point than they have been. Because, and here's why, in all likelihood in 2022, Republicans are going to take the House. There's a pretty decent chance they're going to take the Senate. There's a reasonable chance that in 2024, the Republicans win the presidential election. And if they don't do it in 2024, then you've got 2026 and 2028. In which case, in a Biden six-year midterm, you can expect Republicans to expand their position in the House and the Senate and in 2028, you can expect the Republicans to win the presidency. That tends to be the way politics works. So if you want to look at the, at the, the short-term and near-term horizon, okay, the people who, who are coming in, these new people on the right that are coming in, are going to be people that are elected by a base that sees big tech as enemy number one now. Okay? The, the cultural stuff, not the, social, not the social issues, but the cultural issues, 
wokeism, woke capitalism, cancel culture, critical race theory, you know, the the imposition of new standards and new curricula on schools and things like that. That's what's motivating Republican based voters right now. And if they see big tech as complicit in that or as even sort of pushing for that, if they see them as the cancelers in chief, then they're going to be like, all right, great, let's cancel big tech. Let's find ways to hurt them. And if that conflicts with free market principles, then so be it. I'm being realistic and honest here. And that realistic honesty is this. Nobody in the conservative movement right now is going to get anywhere by saying, well, we can't do this to big tech because that would violate uh, free market principles. Okay. Because people are mad and they just don't care. They honestly do not care about the long-term damage. They want to hurt the people that they see are hurting them. This is something you should very well understand on the left, because it's essentially the way the left has been acting about Trump supporters. You know, they see the Trump supporters as the enemy. They want to hurt them. They want to lash out to them. And they're not thinking about the consequences. When you start acting that way, guess what? You create a permission structure for the opposition to act that way. I'm not going to say who started it, because really both sides started it. We, we go back to blind politics is a firmly both sides podcast. But that's the reality. Okay? So if you're expecting that... You know, Mitt Romney is going to be able to lead some sort of last second charge to protect big tech from regulation that's coming down the pike. No, what's much more likely is that Josh Hawley is going to get together with Elizabeth Warren and be like, hey, I hate big tech. You hate corporations. Let's figure out how we hurt them. And that is more likely than not. And, and, and the tech companies will have nobody to blame but themselves. This was a completely avoidable problem of their own making, and it's not one from which they can extricate themselves. And I'm not sure it's entirely one from which they want to extricate themselves. And that is, is now let me give my warning to the populist folks on the right. If you think there's any kind of regulatory schema that you can put together in terms of stripping Section 230, in terms of changing regulations or anything like that, that the billionaires who run these big tech firms can't find a way to turn to their own advantage, you know, regulatory capture is a real thing. Crony capitalism is a real thing. And, you know, th th there's a certain extent to which these companies are begging for the government to regulate them because they figure they can handle it and their opponents, you know, their, their competitors can't. It's a two-sided issue from the big tech perspective. Regulation is coming and the regulation is going to be punitive, but probably the big, the big firms are assuming that they can weather it. And then in fact, in the long run, you know, they'll, they'll accept the pain because it's going to, it's going to impact their market share positively. So there are a lot of ways in which this could go. And most of them are suboptimal because most of them are not geared at fixing the problem. There's two problems that I see. I said I was going to talk about three. One is the too much corporate power. The other is the monoculture. The third one I want to talk about is the way in which big tech operates as a business model, which is that you have these big firms, you have startups, people that are having really, really good ideas that they're trying to develop. And their goal is to get bought by Google, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, etc. That's the whole business model of venture capitalism that is in big tech right now. People don't want to develop and do their own thing. They want to develop something so they can sell it to one of the big guys. Nobody's thinking about replacing them. They're thinking about how do I cash out? You know, how do I develop what I'm going to develop, cash out, and then go develop another thing? Now, that's not actually a bad model for improving your 
technology, right? There's some positives to that from a, a technological perspective. It does produce a lot of innovation, right? So that aspect of it is good. The problem is that it also creates a, an immense concentration of power in the hands of those big firms, okay? And so this is one of those things where you have to ask some fundamental questions from a free market perspective, okay? Because what's happening here is not, it's not a free market system. It is a corporate oligopoly. I mean, that's, that's the business model of big tech, but it's a corporate oligopoly that has found a way to, to remain flexible and innovative by essentially buying out startups and then giving people the, the capital to go back and do it again. So from a business perspective, it's very efficient, but from a market perspective, it's not. Okay, and so so this goes back to a little bit of some of the philosophy that we've talked about in the past in terms of vir the virtue of capitalism, but also what is it that we mean when we talk about capitalism when we talk about the free market? And this is where I would say there's a difference between pro-business and pro-market. A pro-market approach says that competition in and of itself is good. Okay, and so from a pure free market perspective, I would look at that business model and I would say, okay, yes, you're very innovative. You're very effective in creating innovations, but the one thing that you're not innovating on is the overall fundamental model. You're making tweaks around the edges to your, your business model. So let's say Facebook, for example. Facebook is a platform, they're adding new things to the platform, but you're not rethinking the platform, soup to nuts, to figure out has it worked or has it not worked, okay? You know, Amazon starts out as an online bookseller, it's expanded from that and has become this massive Goliath that's into to everything. But what if Amazon itself is not as efficient as it could be, right? Who's going to compete with Amazon to make them stay honest. How, how can you, at this point, form a different Amazon if Amazon's business model is to essentially just buy up competitors so that, nobody, so that they can dominate the market? Businesses don't want a free market. This is the first fundamental thing that you want. No business wants competition because competition is expensive. It makes them lose profits. What they want is to completely dominate the market. They want a monopoly because monopolies make it easier for them. And so unfortunately we have a situation where the tech companies have created an oligopoly and they're oftentimes not really competing with one another directly. There's some competition, you know, Apple and Google compete over phones and all that kind of stuff, but there's, there's really no peer to peer competition because none of them are competing in each other's core areas. And in those core areas, there really aren't peer competitors. Now let's get to some solutions. I think the solution ultimately is going to involve a certain amount of breaking up big tech. I, and I think you can make the argument for that on market grounds. And I think you can make the argument for that on monoculture grounds. But I think the way you need you do it needs to be very smart and very strategic. So let's let's begin with the, what do I mean when I say breaking up? What I mean is I think that Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, etc., are all guilty of, of violating the spirit of antitrust legislation and regulation. And that, in fact, there needs to be much more aggressive oversight of big tech mergers and the things that big tech is, is buying, right? There's, there's been a focus on uh, certain types of integration, but the type of integration that big tech is doing where you have essentially these massive conglomerates getting into different things, a thing over here and a thing over there and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's not something the antitrust regulators have gone after in the past because, you know, you, you see it in other businesses, you know, Philip Morris and Kraft, 
you know, Philip Morris buying Kraft Foods is not a big deal because Philip Morris is cigarettes and Kraft is macaroni and cheese. So it's very different things, right? So that type of, of concentration is not something that has been seen as problematic from an antitrust perspective. And, you know, we want to be limited in our intervention here. And here's the argument that I'm going to make. We need to start looking at the internet itself as the space, rather than saying, well, if they're integrating with this part of the internet over here and that part of the internet, it's like, how much of the internet itself do you actually control? How much of e-commerce do you actually control? Amazon. Uh, how much of internet um, searching do you actually control? If you own the phone, do you then also get to own all the apps that are on the phone? If you are the store, how much leeway do we give you in terms of also being the seller? These are questions that really we have not answered in terms of the internet. And so do I think we need a new regulation? Maybe, but probably what we need to do is look at the development of antitrust regulations that came out of the Sherman Antitrust Act in the 1880s, which by the way was passed even through a conservative Republican Congress. So this isn't like even, you know, this is sort of pre-progressive era, although how much it was enforced depended on who the president was. And you want to think about this, this question of, okay, we had the various different types of integration that was, was happening in the Gilded Age with robber barons. And then legislation and regulation was put in place with a purpose to break up the types of concentrations that were seen as most dangerous and not to break up those that were not seen as dangerous. So what are the types of concentrations of power in big tech that are the most problematic? What are the types of concentrations in big tech that are causing market distortions? Because that's essentially what we're seeing here. Okay. When you have situations in which if let's just pick on Amazon, when you have a situation in which Amazon says, I'm not going to sell book X, you know, or I'm not going to sell any books that, that represent perspective X. Okay. Then you're naturally creating a market market distortion. D does Amazon necessarily need to ban books that argue for really fringe ideas? Probably not because there's not a market for them. Okay. So if Amazon's saying we're not going to sell book X, yes, they have a right to do that. But when you are a monopoly that causes a market distortion. Okay. So we need to think about from a perspective of antitrust, how much control is too much control and in what areas is that the most concerning? I tend to think that most of this can probably be done within the existing framework or by looking at tweaks to some of that framework. And I think that's the venue in which it needs to happen is probably in that venue of antitrust rather than thinking about, you know, let's, let's, vastly modify section 230, all those, those other types of issues. That's point number one. Here's point number two. The free market oriented and limited government assumption has always been, and I, I treat those two things as the same, but as I'm about to discuss, they're not. Okay. The assumption has always been that corporations are more likely to be responsive to popular concerns than the government. And so, you know, the, the criticism that you, you get whenever people who are regulating are talking about regulating big tech from the conservative side. One of the criticisms that you always see, and I saw this recently, and it's, it's a reasonable argument on its face, is look, if you give this weapon to the government, then you run the risk of when the, the guys you don't like get in power, they will use it against you. Here's the counter argument that I would make to that if I were on a let's regulate big tech side. The counter argument is big tech is such a monoculture 
that there's no chance that conservative voices are ever going to be heard in the big tech space. It's never going to happen. They're, they're, they're never going to listen to anybody who is cult particularly socially or culturally conservative. But I have a pretty reasonable chance of getting enough members of Congress or getting a president elected such that the government will sometimes be accountable to and listening to my concerns. So actually, from a conservative perspective, the monoculture in big tech is so intense right now that you probably have a better chance of getting a fair hearing from government than you do from corporations in this particular area. Big tech has been very clear that they don't care if conservatives don't buy their products because they know that conservatives are not going to not buy their products, right? Uh, it's very hard to cut off social media and you can't buy a, you, you can't buy a phone that's not from one of these companies at this point, unless you're going to buy a flip phone, which, you know, if I could buy a flip phone, I probably would because I don't actually think that iPhone and these other phones are great as phones. And I kind of like my phone to be a phone first and foremost, like it has to be able to call people and send texts and do those things. And while it might be an okay, tiny computer, they're not awesome as phones. Anyway, point being, it's very hard to opt out from their products. Okay. Coke, if Coke starts to boycott, you know, the Georgia law, because, you know, and it's based out of Georgia and starts to talk about how, you know, we need to, Coke needs to go woke and all this kind of stuff. People can buy Pepsi. Coke backs off from its woke advocacy very quickly because people start talking about boycotting Coke, you know, and only drink Pepsi. There's an alternative. Why is that? Well, because Coke was never allowed to buy out Pepsi. Coke was never allowed to buy out, you know, any potential competitor that might arise. Uh, there are antitrust protections in, in place for that. All right. And also because of where Coke is located. Okay. Geography plays a role here. Big tech is intensely concentrated in left-wing areas, mostly Silicon Valley, which was a left-wing area before big tech started up there. As long as that's the case, there's going to be a monoculture. I don't expect a great conservative renaissance in, you know, the Bay Area. It's not going to happen. It's always going to be a bastion of elite white progressive mentality. It's just, it's just the way it goes, you know, unless uh, they really do stop having kids to the point where you're, you're more slightly more socially conservative, although not necessarily Republican groups just completely take over the politics there. You know, so if there's a, if there's a great uh, Hispanic takeover of the Bay, uh, Hispanic Latino, you know, Asian coalition that comes in and sort of dethrones the white progressive elite that really runs things around there, then yeah, maybe you'll, you'll start to see some, some shifts, but you know, I don't really see that change happening much. E even if that happens politically, I don't see that having much of an effect on big tech because they are wealthy enough to be insulated from that. As is right now, the culture there is not going to change. This is a significant problem for free marketers who want to use the government will never be as responsive to your concerns as the corporations will line of defense. Because I would argue, look, that's true about Coke. That's true about some of these other corporations that are that have competitors, right? Delta Airlines. That that's probably also true, although this hasn't hit yet, about the NCAA. Side note from Big Tech. The NCAA is, is essentially pushing states to to say that they have to be okay with biological males competing against biological females in sports because of transgender ideology. You do realize NCAA that like college football is your number one thing and it's a very, very conservative demographic. Like they, they are aware that if 
people actually said let's boycott the NCAA and not go to college football games and not watch college football on the conservative side it would it would hammer their revenue probably to a much greater degree than even the NFL has been hit by some of the the boycotts and and arguments that have, have been coming out about that like yeah people in the south are very defensive of college football and it seems unlikely that that would happen but you are playing with fire to a certain extent this is the kind of thing where people are going to say you know this is this is getting to be ridiculous there's also pressure to pay your players which would cost the ncaa a lot of money that's actually a situation in which the ncaa is is acting in a way that's not free market right you have essentially they're using unpaid labor and and scholarships that if you look into it athletes don't necessarily get the same kind of high quality education you you definitely do have some situations in which uh, there are corporations that are more vulnerable to market pressures. So I'm not going to say that in every single case, it is true that government and politics is going to be more responsive to a conservative perspective than corporations. But I am going to say that's probably true in big tech. They don't listen. They don't care. And if you're a conservative, you can't hang that. So how do you address this particular issue? When the normal argument that you would make for let's just handle it through the market doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so that's another another challenging aspect of this. So how do you fix the monoculture? Because even if you if you break up big tech and you haven't fixed the problem of the monoculture, you break up the concentrations of power without fixing fixing the monoculture issue, then you essentially have a situation in which there's really no change because you know you, you can break up these corporations, but if everybody is essentially going to the same, for lack of a better term, cocktail parties, they're all still going to think the same and they're all still going to behave the same. And when one corporation does something, they're all going to follow like lemmings. Presumably, greater market competition would, would you know, if you believe in sort of the invisible hand theory, would naturally lead some platforms to gravitate more toward that conservative market. But I think there is another thing that you can do that will potentially help. And this may have broader implications for fixing some of the other issues that we've talked about as well. This is what I would call a Heartland Visa program. Uh, This is actually something one of my students uh, recommended. Uh, Shout out to John Locke. And the idea is there are a lot of areas, particularly in places like the Rust Belt, uh, in in other communities, where the areas are very economically depressed. What if we gave expedited visa processing and and made it easier and more user-friendly and actually strongly encouraged people to come to the United States if they were going to settle in this area and start a business? Okay, so if you want to come, you want to be an entrepreneur, whether that's a a restaurant or, you know, a a big tech, uh, you know, thing, firm. But you have to agree to move to one of these areas that has sort of been more economically depressed. The goal being to revitalize these areas and bring in new businesses and new jobs, which actually then changes immigration policy from one where you can talk about how, you know, these immigrants, you know, are are coming and taking jobs away, which is a talking point that comes out and it's very complicated. It's probably mostly false without getting too much into the numbers of it. It's probably mostly false. That doesn't mean that it's entirely false. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm going to say it's categorically false, but probably uh, it is mostly false, except with you know in certain areas and in, in industries and so on and so forth. But if you incentivize it that way, then you you've changed the game 
more to these folks that are coming in, these immigrants that are coming in are actually creating jobs in economically depressed areas. Government, immigration is a policy over which government has a lot of control. And if government says, we're going to give you a visa, but you have to like settle in these types of areas, you know, here are your options, pick, then that is something the government has the right to do. Okay. If you're coming into a country, that country has the right to control its borders and they have a right to tell you, here are the places that we will allow you to come and we'll give you preference if you want to come into these areas and provide these types of economic activities. That's legit. The only way you think that's not legit is if you're the kind of person who thinks that governments don't have any right to control their borders. And that's frankly kind of nuts. And this isn't necessarily talking about like nativism or restrictionism or anything like that. It's just a recognition that the, sovereign, the power of a sovereign state is to control who comes into their country and who doesn't. We can disagree about whether that number should be high or low. I tend to think it should be higher than most people who emphasize the, the point of, of border control. But it is within the sovereign power of the government. So it's not expansion. It's not a violation of limited government principles. Now, why does this? Why do I say this is a factor for big tech? Okay, think about how much of the big tech sector is dominated by first generation or, se or even second generation immigrants. Think about the degree to which you've got people that are coming here, wanting to work at elite colleges, getting their background in this stuff, and then they settle in Silic Silicon Valley. And the one thing that we know very strongly about immigrants is they tend to assimilate to the culture of the place that they're in. <laughs> if you were to compare Bobby Jindal from former governor of Louisiana or Nikki Haley, former governor of South, South Carolina, both of whom are second generation immigrants from India to somebody from the same place, same town, you know, their parents came from the same place, but they settled in, you know, the Bay area, San Francisco, you're going to see some very, very different values, very, very different politics based on just where people settle. Okay. One of the questions that people ask is, you know, what's with Hispanics in Texas? Why are they so much more conservative than Hispanics in California? You know, they're, even if they're coming from kind of same, similar areas in Mexico, well, people tend to assimilate to the dominant culture where they live. And white people in Texas are also a lot more conservative than white people in California. You know, just about everybody in Texas is a little bit more conservative than just about everybody in California, for the most part. So people assimilate to the dominant culture. It's just, it's a natural phenomenon that happens. So if you spread out some of those tech-savvy folks and have them starting businesses in areas where there's not as much of a monoculture, where it's not this sort of secular white elite consensus that dominates the way everybody thinks, guess what? You're going to get less of a monoculture in the tech sector. Just geographically spreading things out will make a huge difference. A huge difference. Because people are going to assimilate to more the places where they live. And the irony is that technology being what it is today, there's no reason for a geographic concentration of big tech. There's no reason why everybody in the big tech area has to live and work in the same place. Especially now with the growth of you know video, video conferencing tools and things like that. You know, you want to live in big tech, you could or work in big tech, you could buy a, a a nice place in the in the Shenandoah Valley or you know the mountains up there in, in you know the western parts of Virginia because there's beautiful parts of the state. You could have really good Wi-Fi and be communicating with your colleagues, you know, half a half a country away. But when you go to get food, you go to get to the grocery store, you interact with your neighbors, you're going to be meeting people who have a very different perspective. 
Okay, you're not surrounded by a monoculture, and that's going to change the way you think. It might not necessarily make all these folks into overnight, you know, cultural and social conservatives. But when we're having these conversations about should we ban this book that is is critical of transgender ideology, it's very different if somebody says, "Look, I know people who take this perspective," and it's not necessarily because of bigotry; it's because of, of certain beliefs about theology or or basic biological science or what have you, right? Or, you know, are we going to deplatform people who are saying that they believe marriage is between a man and a woman? Well, no, look, I know people in the places where I live, in the place where I am, who have that perspective. And I'm not sure that we should target everybody with the same broad brush. So at a minimum, you break down the polarization by spreading out the uh, geographic concentration of big tech and of cognitive elites in these same zip codes. And the easiest way to do that is new immigrants that are coming into the country. You expedite, you allow for greater visa flexibility, you allow for, you make it much, much easier to come and to stay. There, there are all kinds of incentives that you could put in if people are willing to do that and have that experience of living in an economically depressed area and starting a business and creating jobs, right? Because that's the other thing is you, you want to be starting a business there that's going to create some jobs in in uh, the local area. That's going to bring some revenue into that local area. And so these are the types of things that are, you know, they're not the big systemic, like we're going to eliminate section 230 and we're going to create an oversight board that's going to make sure that big tech does what we want, right? Those types of things are not necessarily going to fix the problem because they are barrier to entries, barriers to entry of smaller firms. And if you try to fight the monoculture by imposing a regulatory structure on it, what eventually happens? Well, eventually you get that infrastructure infiltrated by the people that it's trying to regulate. It's called regulatory capture. It's one of the oldest tricks in the book, and it happens all the time. And there is no preventing it once you establish that regulatory apparatus the first at, the first thing that the people you're trying to regulate are going to ask themselves is how do i get control of this so what you need to do is think smart and think strategically about how can we use existing antitrust and if we can't use existing antitrust how do we strengthen that in such a way as to promote market competition the purpose of antitrust is to ensure that there is a competitive marketplace it is a free market regulation right Limited government and free market almost always run along together, but if you're going to have a well-functioning free market, there are some things the government really needs to do. And one of those is to ensure that there's competition in the marketplace. Somebody has to do that. Somebody has to ensure that role because left, left to themselves, businesses will try to gain monopoly. Businesses don't care about free market capitalism. Okay, And so you have to have an infrastructure um, to hold that in place. That doesn't mean that you want the government to start picking winners and losers in the market, but you do kind of want the government to make sure that there is a market. This is why we're not anarchists or uh, you know, anarcho-libertarians or anarcho-capitalists or whatever. Because part of the job of the, of the market is, or the government is to ensure that there's a fair play, to be an ombudsman and make sure that there are rules to the marketplace and that those rules are being followed, that people aren't lying, cheating, or stealing. Best guarantee of that is cultural. The best guarantee of that is, is that we, you foster a culture where people don't lie, cheat, and steal. But even if you have that culture, you still need to have cops in the marketplace who are ensuring uh, tranquility and order. 
And so that's the role that we're talking about here is there needs to be a little bit of policing of the marketplace, of the big tech marketplace. There isn't, you don't want to necessarily have the government picking winners and losers. You don't want them to necessarily nationalize it. You don't want them to take over. But we need to have a cop on the block who's going to say, no, nah, you know, that doesn't seem like a fair business practice. I think maybe there's a little bit too much of a concentration. And I do think that the concentrations of power and the physical concentrations of people are the two biggest challenges with big tech. If you can break that up a bit, I think it has a huge impact and it will spread things out, potentially break down the monoculture a little bit uh, and also prevent the absolute concentrations of power. And so what ends up happening with that? Does that impede the development of our tech sector? No, I don't think it does because I think you get more of a churn. You get more people with different ideas and different perspectives. And who knows what bringing those different perspectives in will do to bring advances. You know, it may be, in fact, that if you have a bunch of hyper, like, let's think about the obvious culture of your typical computer science programmer nerd. They tend to be male, mostly white, not exclusively. There's changing in that not very traditionalistic, culturally speaking, oftentimes gravitate toward atheism, particularly sort of like the new atheism and that type of stuff. They tend to be, you know, individualistic in a sense, but there's also this cultural predisposition toward, well, you, you have to have, you know, the government to step in and, you know, do these things, right? Maybe that's not actually the, the, a culture that develops a platform that's going to be the most sustainable in the long run for the preservation of the kind of culture you need for free market, right? To what extent does a culture determine the shape of technology? And if you've got a monoculture that's determining the sh shape of technology, maybe that technology is not actually as efficient as it could be. Maybe that technology is not actually uh, as desirable for as, as wide a perspective or, or a number of users as it could be. And so I definitely think that there needs to be some more diversity culturally. And that diversity explicitly includes more people with a religious background, more people with a traditional cultural background, more people that don't live in San Francisco. Um, nothing against San Francisco. I'm sure it's a lovely city, but you know, every area has got their own unique culture and that culture shouldn't dominate an industry that's this powerful. And so those are the types of problems that it's very hard to fix with legislation, but those are the types of problems that actually need to be fixed. And so you tweak around the edges, you put a little bit more policing into it. You think about how can we beef up antitrust regulation and you do keep in mind that you are going to have to break up some of these oligopolist companies, but you want to make sure that that breakup is done in a way that is smart and strategic and fosters competition rather than being something where you've got sort of the heavy hand of the government coming in and sort of nationalizing these things and treating them like public utilities, because that approach doesn't actually foster a free market either. And it's not going to break up the monoculture. And, and ultimately to me, that's the base problem you've got. Okay, so that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Other than that, have a great rest of your day. For Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.